It's nine minutes past nine Central African time here in Johannesburg, South Africa, and it's one hour behind this, uh, so nine minutes past eight in Nigeria, where we are going to be introducing a very special guest this evening. Uh, our guest is uh, Mutia Badruddin, an obstetrician gynecologist, homeschooling mother, writer, and multiple award-winning author, and her books mostly contemporary Islamic fiction, right to the Nigerian Muslim experience. And uh, we're talking this evening about a series of articles that she's penned that appear on muslimmatters.org, talking about the Islamic history of Nigeria, as well as the educational experience of Nigerian Muslims. In the first part of a three-part series, she writes about how the history of Islam in Nigeria is not well known to many Muslims outside the country or even the continent. And many people know Nigeria as the most populous African country, but fewer realize that with a population of around 200 million, even the most conservative 2018 estimate of 53% or 53.5% of Nigeria Nigeria's population is Muslim, which makes it the country with the largest Muslim population in Africa and the fifth largest Muslim community in the world, that after Indonesia, Pakistan, India and Bangladesh. And obviously with those kind of statistics, uh, it just emphasizes the point for uh, the Muslim world to connect and be aware of the Nigerian Muslim community and the contribution it's made to the growth and education of Islam as well as the internal dynamics of that community and that's uh, the discussion that she's going to help us with this evening. We welcome her to Radio Islam this evening. Mutia shukran for your time and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Thank you so much for having me it's a great absolute pleasure and uh, I, I have to admit that in uh, many years of being on the radio seldom had a direct opportunity to do uh, crossovers to Nigeria uh, for whatever reason uh, that may be but uh, it's, it's a great honor to be talking to you and being able to uh, get uh, the, the perspective from inside Nigeria and, and obviously this is to build the bonds of brotherhood and sisterhood across Africa and across the world and uh, understand, share our uh, common experiences uh, for the benefit of the Ummah. First, a bit about yourself, um, you know, the uh, perhaps more on the, the side of writing, uh, as you've described as a multiple award-winning author, uh, and your works of fiction that uh, obviously contribute to the world, the Nigerian Muslim experience. Just a bit about uh, your writing career until this point in time. Um, okay, so I, I started writing a long time ago, really, but my first was published in Nigeria in 2003. It was a fiction book, young adults, just talking to the experience of young Muslims when they first come to Ibeka and Sanin and Pakistan. And stuff. And it was so well received within the community. Um, it was almost as if you know, Muslims were starving for books that spoke to their own experience. But my day job as a medical doctor doesn't give me so much time for writing, so I kind of, it was just something I did because I felt employed, and I just um, 
abandoned it, so to speak, afterwards. And then fast forward a couple of years, 2010, I had the second book out. This time it was non-fiction. It was um, addressing the issue of um, living through fertility challenges as a Muslim woman and, you know, offering tips and just, like, help along that journey. By that time, I was already specializing in obstetrics and gynecology, so I had... Um, a lot more of experience dealing with those kind of patients, but also what it meant to be a Muslim woman be dealing with that experience. So that was what informed that work at that point. Again, I found I felt a void and I failed it, but it wasn't something that I was really pursuing. And then 2020 came, and with all of the pandemic and you know everything that surrounded it, I came out with my first actual full novel, which is Ricky and Z. And it was published internationally, and it just kind of took off. I wasn't really expecting the reception, but it just kind of took off, winning awards internationally, locally, like, subhanAllah, it wasn't something I expected. And it was fiction, it was talking about the experience of what it meant to be, you know, a Nigerian Muslim woman in this day and age, being, you know, trying to combine so many things and be so many things to so many people. And... After that book came out in 2020, I've just kind of been in this space really talking and writing and, you know, more people, are, because the world has really opened up and I think that from the side effects of the pandemic as well, more people want to know other people's perspectives. So I find myself more in this space being invited to talk about um, the experience that I write to, which is Nigerian Muslim experience mostly, especially from the point of view of women. And that was what led to this article um, on Muslim matters as well. They invited me and wanted me to write something about um, what Islam was like in Nigeria and a key topic. And I wanted to do you know, an evolution of Islamic history, but also Islamic education in Nigeria. Alhamdulillah, now, uh, it just as, you know, on the, or at the outset, uh, this point that you make at the beginning of the article uh, on the size of Nigeria's Muslim population and if one has to look at it in terms of demographics uh, that you know automatically should catapult Nigeria up uh, into the global Muslim discourse and appreciating uh, the contribution that it makes uh, to the world Muslim population and yet uh, so very often uh, as is lamented we find that when people talk about the Muslim world or when there's a discussion on uh, you know Muslim discourse uh, voices from Africa voices from Nigeria uh, do not feature that prominently uh, what, what is your diagnosis of why this is the case and the way to change this um, I think that um, it's a multi, you know, specific problem. Um, and it's the experience that we as African, black African Muslims live with daily. So in Muslim spaces, we are not deemed Muslim enough. And in black spaces, we are not deemed black enough. And when you find, a, you know, a popular Muslim discourse thing going on, people generally tend to look to the Arabs or the South Asians. And those are the voices that do make um, Muslim discourses. The cost, the, what causes it really? I, I think part of it is racism. If I could, you know, be that blunt, part of it is racism. Being black in this world is 
something that we have to live with and there's a lot of baggage that comes with that, mostly from other people's perception of what it means to black. But also part of this is capitalism because at the end of the day, the people whose voices are deemed important are people who have capital behind them like supporters. And then there is the political um, will and all that. So African countries so far, we don't have such clout when it comes to international political um, stage. And that means that even in Muslim um, circles, even in Muslim discourse, discussions, more um, population from those countries may be government come back then with the political will which is not something that a lot of us have even though we are in majority in our own country even even in our country as nigerians we do not have the we do not always have the political will to back up our points or our viewpoints so i think it's really a combination of all of these issues that make it such that you know nigerian or really african voices are not quite as heard in now the the series of articles uh, speak uh, significantly about the development of uh, Islamic education historically as well as current trends in Nigeria uh, but it starts off with a history of uh, the uh, the arrival of Islam in Nigeria. Now, a lot of what uh, happens in Nigeria and the discussions about Nigeria always would reference uh, a north-south divide. So right at the onset, I want you to uh, please just advise us on uh, what's the what's the nature of this north-south divide and how that uh, obviously would uh, feature so prominently in everything that is said about Islam in Nigeria. Um, so the way it's, Nigeria is a very um, internally divisive country in terms of everybody is aware of not just their location but their tribal allegiances, cultural allegiances, religious um, affiliations, and that affects how policies are made and really how everyday life in Nigeria is kind of evolved. But the northern part of the country is considered to be predominantly um, even though we have a lot of minority tribes in the country, we have know, over 500, 300, 500 different minority tribes and cultures. But we tend to speak of the country as though it was divided into three parts. And in the north, which is dominantly the largest in terms of surface area, but also in terms of population, um, we, we see um, House of Lani people, and they are the majority Muslim population. In the south to the west, then you find the Yoruba people, which is my people, and these were the people who welcomed the colonizers um, at the height of colonialism, who embraced the British values and cultures and education and all of that. And because of the way the colonization, the colonial master structure, you know, they are taking over, we have a lot more of um, Yoruba people converting from Islam to be able to go to school and get opportunities of working in the regional administrative offices and stuff like that. So we have a almost 50-50 mix of um, Muslims and non-Muslims in the Southwest, even though Islam has been in the Southwest for about four centuries or so before um, the Europeans came. Now to the west, to the east, sorry, in the Southeast, you have the majority, again, most people 
for now. Again, we have a lot of other minority countries, but for the sake of ease or, or you know, convenience, we usually just say the evil people. Now, the evil people, too, were very big on their traditional practices, and they also suffered a great deal from um, contact with the Europeans and the colonization and everything. So they also have a fairly good mix of um, Christian and traditional um, religious worshippers, but a very, very little um, Muslim um, minority population among the evil people. Mostly because even at the time when Islam had penetrated in the north from around the 11th to 14th century and in the southwest from around the 14th to 18th century, there was no incursion of Islam into Igbo land until about the 19th to 20th, early 20th century. So the, the population there is very few. All of this to say that that division then plays out on you know the political field, but the social cultural um, discussions and how people relate to each other. But when they talk about the not South divide, especially when international bodies are um, reporting about Nigeria, they're, they're really just trying to play a binary that doesn't necessarily always exist. We have a lot of non-Muslims in the North, and we have a lot of Muslims in the South, especially in the Southwest. And even in the Southeast, there's still some minority Muslim population. So if you use my family, for example, you have a lot, we have a, we're a Muslim-Muslim family, we have a lot of non-Muslims as well. Some of them who have changed as far back as the early 40s, 50s, so that they could go to school. But some of them who were, you know, Muslim and then accepted Christianity and stuff like that. So it's a lot more complicated than somebody would imagine just from listening to, you know, external perspectives of North-South Muslim Christian divide in Nigeria. If you've just joined us, we are speaking to Mutia Badruddin, who is a Nigerian Muslim author, talking to us about uh, the history of Islam in Nigeria and uh, the discussion always is going to progress into uh, Islamic education in Nigeria and how it has uh, evolved. Uh, we've just spoken a bit about the uh, personal background as well as uh, the uh, kind of dynamics at play that need to be kept in mind when we talk about Muslims and Islam in Nigeria. We go for a quick break and we resume the discussion after that. 27 minutes past 9 Central African time, continuing our discussion with Mutia Badruddin about the history of Islam in Nigeria as well as the uh, Islamic educational setup in the country. Uh, so you, you had mentioned, uh, and this is a very interesting point, uh, Mutia, before the break, that uh, although Islam is well-rooted in, in Nigeria, uh, you have some areas of the country where uh, Islam only kind of made a landing uh, because of certain factors, uh, you know, almost 100, only 100 years ago. So there's uh, vastly different dynamics in different parts of the country. But if, uh, you, you know, to simplify it for an external audience, uh, normally people would point out a certain founder or a certain person who was most influential in the early stages of Islam in a particular region or in a particular country, uh, what would or who would that particular person be or who would that particular dynasty be uh, if we talk about the arrival of Islam in Nigeria overall? Okay, so um, 
the simplest answer would be to say um, Sheikh Osman Dafodio, but that would not be the most accurate, you know, answer really because um, Sheikh Osman Dafodio's um, caliphate was not established until the 18th, late 18th, early 19th century. Um, century, but Islam had been in Nigeria, especially in the northern part of Nigeria, from about the 11th century. And there's different reports about it being as a result of trade from the um, Kanem Empire of Borno, as well as from the northern Ar um, African um, region. In fact, some people say that um, as far back as the time of Okba um, bin Nafia, which is like the 6th century of, um, you know, Successory of the Christian era, that's the companion of Professor Salam. That had been the time that Islam had, you know, penetrated the parts of Africa where Nigeria is now located. So it's difficult to say. What we do know that is that, you know, from that 11th century, it didn't penetrate until the middle of the country as we know it now, until about the 14th century. And by the time of the coming of the um, Sheikh Osman Danfolde's um, caliphate and jihad and establishment of the caliphate, really, what he was doing or what that did was to establish or return the people back to the future of the deen. Because, yes, the people had come in contact with Islam and some of them had even accepted Islam. There was a lot of practices that had been mixed up with it. So the jihad was kind of like a revival more than really the person, somebody bringing Islam into the um, what's it called, into the region or into the country. And the same thing with the south. In the southwest especially, it was contact with traders, specifically from the Mali Empire, that brought Islam to Yoruba people. And for a long time, it was just seen as the um, religion of the foreigners. But of, of course, over time, with assimilation and continued contact, more and more Yoruba people started accepting Islam. So I don't know that we'll say that there's one person, really, when you study the history as much as it was an insidious process of contact over time. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, the, the, the reference you made there, and again, I want to uh, also transition the discussion from the history to, to the educational uh, dynamics as well as the present, but uh, just uh, as uh, a small or small foray into that area uh, for the benefit of a wider audience and this certainly will not do it justice in the short answer but uh, the, the, the mention of the uh, uh, Khilafah that was established uh, by Sheikh Uthman Denfodio, again the, the term uh, caliphate or the term Khilafah used uh, in, the, in, in the sense of Nigeria when we talk about you know the big uh, Khilafahs that ruled the Muslim world uh, put that in perspective for us what uh, form did this Khilafah take and the, the fact that we still have vestiges of that present uh, in the various uh, Amirs and so forth that we find in Nigeria today Okay so um, the Khilafah of Sheikh Usman Danfudio was established somewhere around or was you know really gained recognition for establishment around um, 1803 and at the height of its existence, it stretched over a large empire um, from what is now modern-day Burkina Faso up until Cameroon, including you know states of northern Nigeria as well as well as Niger Republic. Like all of these are now countries that we, different countries 
in our current you know conceptualization of countries but at that time all of this expanse of land was ruled um by the caliphate and it included up to about 30 different emirates under its political structures and it ruled for about a century almost throughout the whole of the 19th century until it was um dissolved by the joint british and german forces you know, in 1903, so it was really big. Until today, like you mentioned, we still have um, the vestiges of it in the Emir of Sokoto, who is still considered the Amir meaning of um, Nigerian Muslims. So, the arrival of Islam, Mutia, uh, in in Nigeria. Uh, what was it a change, as you've highlighted in this series of articles, uh, in the way knowledge was uh, disseminated and knowledge was preserved? And would, would uh, this go, down, go, go back to the premium that Islam places on knowledge, uh, as is so often referenced to the very first revelation, uh, which is read, Iqra, uh, read in the name of, of your Lord. So uh, is this uh, uh, also marked in a, you know, a, a defined way or a very clearly defined way, what we see in Nigeria almost from the onset of the arrival of Islam? Definitely, definitely. Like, if you, anyone who takes time to study um, the history of Islam vis-à-vis education, you soon realize that a lot of people don't understand that prior to the advent of colonization and the arrival of the, um, you know, Europeans in, on Nigerian shores, the only people in Nigeria who were literate, who could read and write, were the Muslims. Because of, you know, this history in our, in our religious culture for you know, spreading and preservation of knowledge. So the Muslims were the only people who could read. Now, not to say that this was widespread or was very common, but it was something that only the Muslims did. Prior to the arrival of Islam, um, tradition or knowledge really among the different peoples of what is now known as Nigeria used to be oral, orally narrated. And that was how they had sustained or survived for so long. But with the um, advent of Islam, with more and more Muslims coming in contact with the local people, they were people who were studying, you know, they were, they, they were not just studying or learning to recite the Quran, but they were also studying old texts, old Islamic texts of religion, yes, but also of, you know, philosophy and medicine and all of the ancient um, sciences that Muslim scholars had. Um, worked on over the years. So, yes, definitely the advent of Islam played a great role in terms of how knowledge was transmitted, moving from um, an oral narration that the people of what is now known as Nigeria used to have to a more recent culture that we have today. Now, this is kind of the mainstay of the articles that you've written, so I'm just kind of asking of uh, for a uh, broad level summary of uh, the 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 evolution that you've you've mentioned so from the time islam comes uh, into nigeria uh, till the present time you sketched a few uh, major trends or major uh, areas of development uh, from you know that oral culture and thereafter the written culture that was uh, emphasized uh, or, or brought in by the Muslims uh, and then mm-hmm. traditional education, the effects of colonialism and uh, a kind of renaissance of education that is occurring now. If you could just uh, take us briefly through those different phases. 
Oh, okay, sure. So, like we talked about, the culture used to be really oral until the Muslims started, you know, Islam started coming into um, local culture. And then, at first, it used to just be the elites of the society that were studying, really, that was learning Islam or even studying to recite the Quran or anything. It used to be just the children of the elites and the rich and powerful and they learned from their scholars and but with time especially with the and now this is where the effect of Uthman Afudio's um, caliphate is most seen because that's when the um the what how do I put that the <laughs> dissemination of Islamic um, education to children became mainstream and it stopped being the prerogative of just the rich and powerful because the ES the caliphate established um, schools in different regions and encouraged people to put their children in it which is where the traditional systems of um, what is now known as the Al Majri system came into being because children travelled from far and wide to attend those institutions, leaving you know their families behind. And the people who they met are, along the road realized that these were students of knowledge that were traveling in the pursuit of knowledge. And so they kind of assisted them um, on their journey. And that system still exists today, even though there's been a lot of um, criticism of it in terms of how it fits into um, modern day living. Um, so mostly this, all, all of these systems was in the north, really. In the south, they had a similar um, system, except that they, it didn't involve the children traveling so far away, and they had local scholars who taught the children and learned from them and all of that. But of course, the the advent of colonization and um, British um, really um, hostile practices for um, education of the children then there's a lot of emphasis shifted from the Islamic education towards the Western education because those who had gone to the British um, evangelicals, or not, what, what they call themselves, you know, the, evangel the evangelicals, I don't know what they are called, I've forgotten. So the, their schools, those were the ones who had um, the chances of getting jobs in the colonial administration's office and all of the white-collar jobs with the advantages that came with it. So at first the Muslims resisted, of course, but over time they realized they were losing the battle and they started putting their kids in school. Now, what that did was, because the children weren't allowed to be openly Muslim, especially in the South, in those schools, for you to be able to register, you had to undergo baptism and get a Christian name and you had to attend the church services and um, Bible study and all of those things. What that did was raise a generation of Muslims who knew very little about their religion, even if they remained Muslim. And so that's the age of the decline of um, Islamic education in Nigeria for a, an entire generation or two. With time, though, things turned around. Th that generation of children who had been disenfranchised in school started setting up their own versions of, you know, secular schools, but that were Muslim-owned, where the children could come in and still learn whatever they needed to learn without giving up their religion. And over time, once colonization ended and independence came, more and more people were able to fight all of those colonial practices to have, like, a fair... Um, space for Muslim children to also be able to learn. Unfortunately, because of all those practices, the children 
had placed, or really the entire populace had placed so much importance on Western education and the culture of Islamic education that had been there, that had been, you know, established in, this, in the population long before the Europeans came, had been eroded. The, 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 way the scholars were no longer um, being served by the population and vice versa. They, they were barely making any ends meet. They couldn't, you know, and they couldn't even retain enough students for them to be able to um, make their own form of livelihood. In the time of the caliphate, the, the Muslim scholars, the teachers, and all of them were being paid by the caliphate. Now, this no longer existed with the advent of colonization. So the whole thing became decentralized, and there was no political will to support it. And so Islamic education kind of took a lot of nosedive. But the interesting thing is, you know, in, in the late 1990s and early 20s, 2000s, when there's been a resurgence of, you know, Islamic revivalism, there's been a lot more interest in learning Islam, and this time from a much more um, advantageous or, um, standpoint. You find that a lot more people now engage with the quest for Islamic education. And these this new avenues are not necessarily quite as structured as they used to be in the olden days with traditional methods, but they seem to be much more flexible and accessible to the newer generation of Nigerian Muslims and as such they're becoming a lot more effective, I suppose. So that's kind of been so the trend. And what you then conclude from that is uh, is that uh, obviously you know you, you, is, is, there's this great learning culture that uh, Islam brings to Nigeria and it thrives. Uh, we have the setbacks of colonialism and how people had to uh, adapt to that and how generations were lost. Uh, but yeah. at this m moment in time, uh, you know, there's this resurgence that you speak about. But we, we, we know that uh, Nigeria would not be insulated from the uh, the trends and the ideological challenges that Muslims face all over the world. And, you know, the, the rise of new new atheism and different uh, isms that Muslims are dealing with. Uh, the, the education system in Nigeria, the Muslim education system, uh, at this moment in time, do you feel it's dynamic enough uh, to be able to, uh, to consider these different challenges and equip Muslims for uh, the, the global climate that they face? Um, I wouldn't want to say yes, because you know it's relatively new. Um, we we haven't been here before as Nigerian Muslims. We haven't been in this space where we are able to, you know, people are really eager to engage with the Islamic culture, Islamic knowledge, and also we have local scholars rising to the challenge and you know, bringing up different opportunities for such Muslims to then be able to learn from that. So th this is new for us. So I wouldn't say that, yes, we are up to the challenge. I think that we are learning. It's a learning curve. We are evolving, but definitely we are dynamic because we keep evolving and moving. Um, even from just 20 2020, after the pandemic happened, prior to the pandemic, most of the opportunities for um, you know spaces to learn about Islam used to be impressing. And with the, the, with the event of um, the um, pandemic and 
everything moving online, that it has opened up a lot more spaces and a lot another gener or section of the Muslim populace have learned to then engage from those vantage points of view. So um, do I think that it's able to answer all of the questions? I think that Islam is. Islam has the um, conceptualization to answer whatever isms that we as human beings um, face. As long as we continue to seek and learn Islam, then we'll find the answers that we are looking for. And I think that Nigerian Muslims are at that point where we are willing to keep learning and keep seeking. So let's, but all we can do is hope that, you know, we can handle it. Modia, uh, in terms of the uh, legacy uh, and notable contributions to scholarship from Nigeria, we know the uh, you know, the, the great learning that took place in other African centers like Timbuktu or uh, Karawiyin or Al-Azhar, these are notable uh, locations on the African continent uh, associated with uh, the production and preservation of knowledge. Uh, do we have uh, similar centers uh, in Nigeria that, that stand out that, uh, you know, the Muslim world should know of? Uh, in terms of physical centers, as well as uh, then, you know, impressive contributions to Islamic scholarship? Definitely, definitely. Like, pre-colonization, the northern cities were known to be great centers of um, Islamic learning, specifically Kaduna, I mean, Kano, um, Maiduguri. They were known to be, you know, centers where people traveled from all over the world to come and learn from them. But in more re even in more recent times, places like um, Markaz in Agege is known for having um, produced many, many students of um, Islamic knowledge that have then gone on to learn and engage in with different parts of the world. Um, generally speaking, we do not have the... Um, big statue of status of a place like of like al for example. But we do have um, new Islamic universities that have just been springing up in Nigeria. And I think that over the years, over the coming years, we are going to see more and more people coming to recognize those places as, you know, centers for Islamic knowledge in Nigeria. We out of time, but I want to ask you uh, one final question, and this is, you know, in the spirit of uh, promoting a greater understanding between different parts of the Muslim world and benefiting from our shared experiences. So the, the, the history of Islam in Nigeria, as well as the educational journey and challenges to, to you know, be able to spread and be anchored in the religion, uh, what uh, is it that you'd feel would be beneficial from this experience uh, to the the rest of the Muslim world, people who are listening to this in South Africa and other parts of the world, uh, what do we learn from, what do we benefit from this uh, experience, and likewise, uh, what, do you, what, what would you feel uh, Nigerian Muslims could benefit from uh, the experiences of Muslims in other parts of the world in terms of uh, their, their Islamic educational setup? Um, I think that it would be a recognition and, if, I don't know, um, valuing of our history, our collective history as Muslims, because 
if we use Nigeria as a case study, even a lot of Nigerian Muslims do not even know the vantage position that Islam has played in our history up until today. Um, you see people talking about um, education in Nigeria and at no point do they mention Islam, even though Islam was the only means where um, you know people had any access to literature or written language for centuries before the Europeans came. So I think that the lack of recognition of our history contributes to the devaluation of Islam in popular discourse you know, the world over, really. And that also plays to why Nigeria, for one, is not recognized even among Muslim countries for its, you know, gravitas in in terms of Muslim populations. So I think that the sharing and um, being able to value our experiences, our different experiences, really, as Muslim peoples, where we are, what, the things that the people of the past have had to go through to, for us to be here now. I think that that's what will be, you know, something important for us to share and learn from. I would love to know a lot more about, you know, the history of Islam in places that we didn't even know had Islam. It's one of the things that I like to, to learn about now. You know, sometimes Islam becomes extinct in those places because we don't keep those histories. And sometimes we find a few people left, a few Muslims left that are still holding on to that history. So I think that learning from that history, valuing it, being able to take lessons from it, and then sharing that lessons across the, you know, the diaspora of Muslims all over the world is what will be most valuable from this experience. Absolutely, and I'd uh, encourage uh, listeners to uh, read in much more detail the uh, uh, summary that you've provided for us this evening, History of Islam in Nigeria, as well as the education ev evolution uh, of uh, Islamic education in Nigeria. Uh, it's available in a three-part series on muslimmatters.org, uh, and uh, you'd be able to navigate through those uh, three articles that have been written by Mutia Badruddin. Also, uh, can uh, check uh, out the, the books that Mutia has written, uh, non-fiction from a Nigerian Muslim perspective, uh, uh, via her Twitter account, which is at Dean Progress. Uh, thank you so much for uh, this very important discussion, uh, beneficial window into Islam in Nigeria, inshallah, the first of many to come. Jazakumullah khairan for your time, and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless all your efforts, Mutia. Amen. Thank you so much for having me. Barakallahu feek and assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Wa alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. And uh, we were speaking there to Mutia Badruddin, an obstetrician, gynecologist, homeschooling mother, writer, and multiple award-winning author, and her books mostly contemporary Islamic fiction write to the Nigerian Muslim experience, talking about a series of articles that she had written about Islam in Nigeria. For the final stretch uh, of the show this evening, it's been all over uh, social media, a very positive story to end up with. Uh, Father Hilarin Higi, that's uh, his former name, uh, he has uh, now entered into the religion of Islam, uh, Catholic uh, priest, 